So we've already been talking about this this morning, but there's a problem in the world. Everybody knows it. Everybody feels it. It doesn't take until you're even my daughter's age to realize something is not right. And to give a picture of what this looks like, uh, there's a quote from uh, a philosopher in the 1800s. It says, A perpetual war is kindled among all living creatures. Necessity, hunger, want, stimulate the strong and the courageous. Fear, anxiety, terror agitate the weak and infirm. The first entrance into life gives anguish to the newborn infant and to its wretched parent. Weakness, impotence, distress attend each stage of that life. And it is at last finished in agony and horror. Man is the greatest enemy of man. Oppression, injustice, contempt, contumely, which means insulting language. I had to Google that one. Violence, sedition, war, calumny again, uh, slander is what that one means. Treachery, fraud. By these they mutually torment each other. And they will soon dissolve that society which they had formed were it not for the dread of still greater ills which must attend their separation. Happy, 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 happy. <laughs> That's the, the state of our world, hey? So the natural question is why? Why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? We all recognize the problem, but what's the solution? What do we do with this? From, from even a young age, one of uh, children's usually first statements about this is, that's not fair. Is life fair? No. Uh, the, the Bible, over and over and over again, they say, why do the, the unrighteous, the evil people prosper and the righteous suffer? Why do the bad people get good things happening to them, and yet the good people have bad things happening to them? And so this problem isn't new, and it's a question that was actually asked of Jesus, too. But uh, because the worldview at that time was a little bit different, they phrased it a little bit differently. They said, they asked him, when bad things happen to people, was it because they deserved it? So Michael brought this up. In John, there was a man that was born blind, and his disciples asked him, who sinned? They assumed if this man had something as terrible as being blind done to him, was it his fault or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. It was so that God would be glorified. There, there is some mystery. And that, that, even just saying that seems, well, it could be easy for somebody who doesn't believe in God to go, well, that doesn't sound very nice. That sounds kind of cruel. God will allow that man to suffer so that he would be glorified. And then uh, we have the case of Job. Job followed God so well that Satan came to, to God and said, well, of course he follows you well. He's blessed abundantly. He has all these kids. He has all, these we- all this wealth. I bet if we took all that away, then he would curse you. Then he wouldn't glorify you anymore. And God, knowing Job's heart, said, go ahead. So he let him. He took everything away from him, and yet Job still walked and glorified God even through his pain. And then Satan comes to him again and says, well, of course, he still has his health. He's still fairly healthy. So then God says, well, go ahead, just save his life, just spare his life. And so Satan uh, attacks Job with boils that were so painful that it felt better to scrape them off with pottery. 
with broken shards of, a, of, of a clay. And so how is God glorified in that kind of situation? Why would God allow that? If God is good, then why does he allow so much evil? And it's a natural question to ask why suffering is present in this world that God created. And that's a typical question for us to ask, especially when we see so many people that we care about, so many people that we love who are suffering. They're suffering from illness. They're suffering from disease. They're suffering from broken relationships. Uh, Of course, Pastor Neil is on all of our minds, as well as his father Floyd, our sister Eileen Dumont, and many, many others who are suffering from various illnesses. We all have family and friends who are suffering from cancer or mental health concerns or relational brokenness. And then on top of this, I was reading the news this week, and I was trying to figure out the details of a a shooting that had happened a couple weeks ago. And the first thing that popped up was a shooting that happened just this last week on Thursday. And there were two separate school shootings in the States within the last couple weeks. But this one on Thursday was in Los Angeles, and it was committed by a 12-year-old girl. And so, like I said, less than two weeks ago, there was a different shooting in Kentucky why do these things happen? How is it that seemingly the most innocent, that the children and the teens and those who are the most faithful to God have these things happening to them? So Jesus, like I said, was asked these similar questions. And in Luke 13, 1 to 5, it says this. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower fell in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Please join me in praying. Father God, we are hurting. We see so much pain and suffering around us, and we want to understand it. Help us to see how you redeem suffering for your glory. Help us to have eyes that can see into eternity rather just into this time and this life. Help us to have hope in the middle of the darkness. Hope that knows no understanding. Hope that is maybe even irrational by the world standards. But help us to make it through the night to come into the glorious morning that you have for us. We ask this in the precious name of your son Jesus. Amen. So here in this passage, Jesus has a crowd of people come to him. And they tell him about this tragic murder of the Hebrew people. There was a crowd that had been killed by the Roman army, and it says their blood was mixed with their sacrifices. So this is something that we don't do anymore, but in the Old Testament, part of a religious ceremony was sacrificing animals to pay for your sins. And this was done as an act of worship to God. So essentially, to put it into our 21st century mindset, these people were at a church. They were worshiping God, and then they were just killed. And so Jesus... Uh, Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. Do you think these people are more sinful than anyone else who gets killed? And so he's trying to get at the root of what their issue is, that 
if something bad happens to somebody, we want to know a reason. So just like with Job, Job had this happen to him. His friends came to him and said uh, that, well, you have to repent of whatever you've done because this horrible thing that happened has to be your fault. You have to have done something that made God mad in order for this horrible situation to go on. So repent, and then you will be healed, and then you will be fine, and then everything will get restored. But Job cries out for a redeemer because he knows that he hasn't done anything wrong. And so he, got, he cries out for help. And so the point that Jesus is answering here and that he's trying to get at is that it's not that these people especially did something wrong. Bad things happen, both to good people and bad people. And so perhaps we imagine that God is sitting up in heaven and waiting to crush someone for their sins. And I've heard non-Christians say that they could never walk into a church because all of a sudden they get struck by lightning. There's, people have this perception that God is just there and just waiting to smush people for, for doing bad things. But as, uh, as, as much as it almost seems ironic, uh, Paul says in Romans that nobody has done good. Everyone has done terrible things. Everybody has sinned, and there's no hope for anybody outside of God's grace. So if, if that were the case, if God was a punitive God that was just sitting, waiting to crush us for our sins, we'd all be gone. We'd all be dead. And so when we're asking the question of why does God allow so much suffering and evil in the world, or even put it differently as, as a lot of atheists would say, the amount of suffering in the world, doesn't that disprove God? If God is so good and God is so sovereign and God is so loving, then why do good people die and bad people live? Now, this isn't an intellectual problem to be solved. This is a personal problem to be solved. We all feel this. We all know this. We all experience this. And as uh, Pastor Michael was saying earlier, we all have emotions. God has made us so that we're emotional beings. And we can't hide those emotions from God. Trying to, trying to uh, clean up our behavior, our language for God, we need to come to him authentically. We're not, we can't hide from him. We can't fool him. And David did this. When David when, was most upset, he did the only thing that he could do, and that was he brought it to God in prayer. He wrote in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me and from my words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And so David, David cries out to God in the only way that he can, authentically. He is hurting, he is broken, and he doesn't know where else to go. And he said, God, why aren't you rescuing me? God, why aren't you healing me? God, why aren't you, why aren't you helping me? And then he responds with praise. So even though the situation that he's going through is so hard, he has enough faith and hope and trust in God that he still says that he is holy. He still says that he is worthy of the praises of all of the people. And so David's son also, who is the wisest man who has ever lived, 
which for some of the women in the room, maybe they're rolling their eyes and be like, oh, that's not a big deal, wise man, yeah, okay. But David's son was the wisest man in the world. And so he wrote some super encouraging words in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you guys have ever read the Ecclesiastes, that's meant to be a little ironic. Ecclesiastes, over and over and over again, is depressing. Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing good. There is no unrighteous. There is nothing going on that's well. But yet, it is still full of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 3 says, Again, I saw all the oppression that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. You know, the the Bible is just true. This is the human experience. This is what we all go through. There are some people who, who have this, uh, this idea of Christians as always happy, happy, happy. But we go through things. And arguably, we actually go through some things deeper. Because we have an enemy that doesn't want us to make it through this life still praising God. We have an enemy that doesn't want us to die praising Jesus and saying, to God be the glory. We have a God that doesn't want a man like, a young man like Stephen, who is being stoned and persecuted and killed, saying, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do, just like Jesus did. What does that take to get to that place? That whether by your life or whether by your death, you glorify Jesus as Lord. What does that take? Well, it's important for all of us to come to a place where we can understand the purpose and the reason for suffering, because we will all go through it. We are going through it. And we need to understand that suffering isn't just a waste. It's not something that just happens. It's not something that that we can always understand every single circumstance. But it's something that we can understand that there is a meaningful way to live through suffering. And there's a way to live through suffering well. And as I've said this before, but we don't have a choice in this life whether or not we'll experience suffering. We have a choice of how we will suffer. Will we glorify God in our suffering and through our suffering? Or will we be mad at him? Or will we reject him? Will we use our suffering as the time to reject God and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you? If you're actually good, then you wouldn't let these bad things happen. Or will we use it instead to say, God, I don't understand. I don't know why this life is so painful. I don't understand everything that I'm going through. But somehow you are glorified through this and I give you praise. Timothy Keller said, There is nothing more important than to learn how to maintain a life of purpose in the midst of painful adversary. As a Christian, the life is a life of adversity. If you're truly following Jesus, you are so unlike the world, the the majority of the people out there, that they'll want to kill you. They'll want to do everything they can to shut you down, because that's what happened to Jesus. Living a life like Jesus lived grates against people's natural inclinations. And it's not saying that we need to be rude or mean or anything, because that's obviously not loving. But if we are actually walking the life that Jesus asks us to walk, there will be trials, there will be suffering, there will be persecution. And so we need to understand how to walk the life through that. And that all cultures are meant to prepare their members for suffering and death. 
That's one of the primary jobs of culture, is to do this. And sociologists and anthropologists have studied for years and compared the various ways that different cultures through time train their members for grief and for pain and for loss. And when this comparison is done, they always note that actually our culture is one of the weakest and worst in history at doing so. Our culture tries to run away from suffering. Our culture doesn't address suffering, and so whenever it happens, we are more undone and shocked by suffering than our ancestors will, would be. So to give just a small picture of what it was like comparatively, in medieval Europe, about one in five infants died before the age of one. That's 20% of infants didn't even make it to age one. And those were just children that survived childbearing. And then uh, by the age of uh, 10, only half of children survived to that point. So that means that in the average family, half of their children were being buried. And this wouldn't have been in a hospital, some faraway place. This would have been at their home. Their parents, their other family members would have walked them through this death and dying. And they would have lost half of their children. And yet, they walked through this and they were resilient through this. So there's something that we are missing as a culture. So life for our ancestors was arguably filled with far more suffering than ours is now. But our suffering we avoid, or our culture rather, we avoid pain at all costs. And one of my professors at college told me that when he was younger uh, in Nova Scotia, that whenever there was a, uh, somebody who died, they would put him or, him or her in an in a open casket in the uh, church, and the lights would be on, and the church would be open for a week straight. So that people could come and visit the person on their own time and grieve and pray for them and, and just be with them. And yet now, at funerals, if there is even the person's body there, it is maybe opened up in a side room for the family to look at for five or ten minutes and then it's closed and then there's a nice picture of the person. As a culture, we don't, we don't even want to deal with death. That they're not even called funerals anymore often. They're called a celebration of life. We're trying to ignore that there has actually been a death. And that's because our culture says that the, the primary purpose of life is to be happy. The primary purpose of our life is to be successful. The primary purpose of our life is to get as many years of happiness as possible. And so we try to ignore death. We try to culture or put it off to the side. People that are dying, people that are sick, we put them in hospitals, which obviously they get great care. But back in, the, back in previous times, people walked alongside with people that were suffering, and they helped them through it. And so we deny death as much as possible. But there's something within us that's innately within us that we realize that suffering and evil is not good. We understand it's wrong. We understand that there's something broken in the world. And in fact, the most serious challenge or problem, people would say, with theism, rather, which is a belief in God in general, is the problem of evil. So why is there evil in the world if God is sovereign and he's omnipotent? So a recent, a recent national poll in the States asked, if you could ask God only one question and you knew that he would give you an answer, what would you ask? What do you guys think the answer would be? Why is there evil? Exactly. People would ask, why is there evil? That was the number one question. Overwhelmingly, why is there suffering and pain in the world? 
And the, the question uh, that, needs to, that needs to be answered, and of course it needs to be answered by people that believe in God, but this is actually something that needs to be answered by any worldview that there is. Even if you're an atheist or someone who believes in, uh, in any other world religion, you need to answer this problem. And all, all, uh, all religions, all forms of thought have to answer this. And there was a man that, uh, named David Hume who said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Well, then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Well, then he's malevolent, he's evil. And if he's both able and willing, then why then is there evil? And Hume used these arguments to debate that God is not good, that there is no God, rather. He was an atheist. And these arguments are still used by atheists today. But as I said, this problem is both personal, and we feel and experience pain and suffering. And it's biblical. It's all throughout the Bible. In the Bible, the writers continually ask the question, like uh, in Psalm 6, 3, and Habakkuk 1, 2, O Lord, how long until you make the world right again? So we know that the world is broken. We know that the world has gone wrong. But as I said, atheists and other religions don't get off the hook for this question either. No matter your worldview, the question still demands an answer. Why is there evil and suffering? And some try to get this pro- by this problem and still believing in God by saying, well, God is not all-powerful. God is limited. God can only do so much. And so he's unable to purge the world totally of evil. However, if this was the case then he couldn't be called God. Because that's not a God. That would just be an upper form of being. And why would anyone worship that God? If he's not strong enough to actually do everything, then why would we worship him? Why not worship the ideal good instead? Why wouldn't we worship what the best possible form of man, as some people do? But the other side of it is, could God do evil and still remain God? We would answer no. One of the things that we say as, as Christians often, as a, the mantra, we say, God is good. And all the time, God is good. And so, God is good. So if God is good, how could he do evil? If God is loving, how could he allow suffering? And so, some religions trying to get past this by saying evil itself is an illusion. So atheists, their answer to this question, or to this is saying, well, the ideas of good and evil, those are just something that came up through evolution, and it just was for the betterment of the people at the time, but it's, it's not really there. It's not really a thing. Death isn't really that bad. Actually, death helps the race get better. Death actually helps people get better. But is that comforting to us? Does that actually answer our question? To me, it's avoiding the question. And then there's some that say that suffering is actually the way to pay off karmic debt. So from a previous life, uh, as a different life form, you did something wrong. And so it's actually a way of paying off that debt. And then there was a pastor that that I'd heard of that was writing a story. And he was actually in India. And he wanted to help some people on the street that were suffering and that they were dying. And his Indian uh, guide from there actually said, no, don't help them because they're paying off their debt. And if you help them, then they'll just have to come back and suffer another life again. So that worldview actually ignores the whole thing of suffering and tries to remove them from it and actually says it's better if they suffer in their life because they'll pay off their debt. But does that make sense with us internally? Does that sit right in our hearts of hearts? And so uh, others talk about a God who is uncaring. They're distant. Maybe they're they're all-powerful, but they don't actually care about humanity. 
And so in some cases, they actually say that there's a God that actually causes the evil and the suffering in the world. Or that there's a balance. There has to be good and there has to be evil. So there's the yin and the yang. There has to be both sides. There can't just be one or the other. But we need to recognize that evil itself is self-evident and present. We know it's there. We can try and ignore it. We can try and do mental gymnastics, but we know it's there. We have to deal with it. And uh, generally in our Western thought, we've, we've determined that there's two different types of evil. There's moral evil, which is uh, breaking the law in terms of hurting somebody else or doing something that we would say is bad. And then there's natural evil, so like a natural disaster. Is that caused by any one person or not? We would say no, so it's not a moral breaking. And so moral evil is all bad things that humans are responsible for, while natural even evils are things that happen in nature without a direct act of humanity. So hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, those kind of things. And some, however, say that all causes of evil is actually moral evil. And with this, they say that Satan is responsible or some other kind of uh, form of an evil God is responsible for every single bad thing that happens in the world. However, I, I think that's giving the devil to kind of too much power. I believe that it's a part of the fall. So in the Bible, it says in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. At the fall, at the time when Adam and Eve chose to sin, sin entered the world. The world had been made perfect, and then it became broken. And it has only gotten worse. It has only degenerated and gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. There's more and more natural disasters. There's more and more pain. And there's something within us that knows that there should be justice. There should be a time when everything is set right. And the things that are not meant to be, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in our hearts. God knows that, that uh, all of us know within our heart of hearts that we're meant to be eternal. We know that there's something else. There's something better out there. And all throughout scripture, though, God uses suffering to make people who they are meant to be. So to refine them. And just a few examples would be Moses, Abraham, David, Job, Paul, and of course Jesus himself are examples of lives which the most evil and uh, most terrible suffering God used to turn into greater good. So Jesus in Isaiah is called the suffering servant. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions and that by his blood we are healed. So somehow God used the suffering and the pain and the death of Jesus to make a way that we could be healed. And is everybody that we pray for on this earth healed right here and right now? I wish it were so, but it's not. Paul, for example, in the Bible, he prayed for uh, a thorn in his flesh. And we don't know what it is because the Bible doesn't tell us. But it said that he prayed three times for this thorn in his flesh to be removed from him. Paul was a great missionary. He planted a ton of churches. He wrote uh, two-thirds of the New Testament. And yet he had something. He had an impediment in his life. I don't know if it was a physical thing. I don't know if it, what it was. But Paul had something that was hurting him. And he asked God to take it away. And God said, no. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, Paul had all the makings of what could be a proud man. And he was a proud and prideful man before Jesus met him. 
He was a man full of knowledge, full of training, full of teaching, and yet God broke him. God turned him into a suffering servant. And when, uh, when, when Paul encountered Jesus, he became blind. And there was a man named Ananias who God told him to go, uh, go talk to Jesus. And then the, the Adrian translation, it says, are you crazy, Ananias says? Do you know who that guy is? That's the guy that's murdering all the Christians. And you want me to go pray for him? And God said, yes, now go and pray for him. Because you will see how much he has to suffer for my sake. Paul experienced so much suffering in his life. He experienced shipwreck after shipwreck, beating after beating. He was, one time he was beaten so badly and stoned that they thought he was dead. And then the crowd dispersed. And then some other fellow Christians came, picked him up, carried him in to the back end of the city, kind of bandaged him up, and then he, is, and then he left later again. Paul experienced so much suffering. And yet God said his power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. So it is somehow only through our surrender to Jesus that he works in us the best. If we think, well, I've got this all covered. If our life is going super easy, super well, we think, well, I don't really need God. But it's in those moments when we realize how broken we are, when we realize how much pain we are in, that we truly turn to God. It says that, uh, I can't remember where this was, so I couldn't reference it, but there was somebody who said, God whispers to us, in our times of uh, joy and happiness, but he screams at us in our suffering. So it's in those times when we really realize, I need God, I need Jesus. And uh, this one pastor uh, in the, in the um, Western Canada named Mark Clark, he said that he, he was a young pastor and he was at this funeral for a 16-year-old. And he, he, it just broke him. He, he couldn't handle it. He just, he was done. He said, I don't understand this, God. How can, how can, if you're good, how can this 16-year-old have died? And this elder uh, from his church took him out for coffee, and Mark just ranted and just said, I don't understand. This is so painful. I don't understand how this can be redeemed for anything possibly good. This man was 16. He had his whole life ahead of him. And the elder let him rant on and on and on and then uh, prayed for him. And then as he was getting up to leave, that elder said, you know, when I was 16, one of my best friends died in a, in a car crash. And uh, it was at his funeral that I first heard the gospel message of hope. And I've been a Christian ever since that day. There's, there's something that we don't understand. We don't have the whole picture. And there's, there's a beautiful part of, our, of our, uh, our line of thinking that says, if the difference between a God who allows suffering versus a God who causes suffering. It's a, the Bible never says that, that God makes bad things happen. As we see in Job, God allowed job to suffer it was under his sovereignty and yet god used that for his glory and it says in romans that uh, god works all things for the good of those who love him now does that mean all our life is going to be happiness and roses and it's we're going to see and understand everything in this life no but uh jesus shows us through this passage in luke that repentance is one of the reasons that he allows suffering because it allows people to have a choice. It allows people to have an opportunity to understand that they need Jesus. That they need something that, that they don't have. That they are sinful and broken and they need God's help. And in every other religion, the gods remain aloof and distant. But our Christian God, the one true God, experienced our human existence himself. He identified with us and didn't just empathize with us. 
he suffered with us and for us. And why? Why did God humiliate himself? Why did he suffer and die an awful death? Yes, it was to save us from our sins, but that's only part of the story. Christianity says that God cared about suffering so much and loved us so much that he came to the cross to reveal his very nature. Suffering was a reflection of who God is, not just something he did. Jesus, Jesus uh, showed us through his work on the cross how God actually feels. In the, in the, uh, the book of Hosea, uh, he's, the, he's a prophet, and God called him to marry a prostitute. And, uh, and he, he brought her home and redeemed her, and she was living a good life. They had a few children, and then she went back to prostitution. And as you can imagine, as a husband, that would just break your heart, or as a, as a wife, if that happened with your husband. And just over and over again, he would come and get her and bring her home and clean her up when she was at the end of a rope, and she would come back. And God used that story to show, this is what my people do to me. God suffers when people that he loves and that he cares about are walking life without him. That breaks God's heart. And so he wants all to come to faith in him. He wants all to come home to him and to be healed. So we can't say that God doesn't care about suffering. He cares about suffering so much that he sent Jesus to the earth to give us hope in the midst of our suffering. So our suffering has a a greater purpose and in the end, a final hope. And the final hope that we have is to be reconciled with God in heaven. And so our restoration, our peace, our joy in heaven knows no bounds. As I I read to the kids in Revelation 21.4, it says, He will wipe every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. C.S. Lewis wrote, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss could make up for it, not knowing that heaven actually works backwards and turns even the agony that we experience into glory. So, so C.S. Lewis was telling us that uh, God works things backwards. Yes, we, appear, we suffer pain and hardship in our life, and we think, how could, a, how could po- God possibly make that right in heaven? Well, we're we're falling short of what God can do. God is amazing. God is sovereign. And in this life, so we understand that repentance is one of our reasons for suffering, to bring us to repentance. The second is reliance. So suffering is a call to trust God and not the life-sustaining props of this world. So it's in our moments of suffering that we truly understand that we need something other than ourselves. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We can't get through life alone. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9, it says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So that's Paul saying that he was in a situation he, he couldn't possibly get through on his own. And they thought they were going to die. But God allowed him to go through that so that he would understand that God would help them through it, that God is there. And the third is that God, a reminder. So suffering reminds us that God sent his son into the world to suffer so that suffering would not be God's, God's condemnation, but our purification. 
So somehow when we go through trials, when we go through tribulations, when we go through pain, God is refining us. That's something that, that Pastor Neil shared with me, that even at this time, even as he's going through this, God is still refining him. God is teaching him things about himself and showing him areas of his life in his heart that maybe he needs to surrender. And God, is, God is, has that power. God has that. And one of the, the pictures is that, uh, uh, is that of sifting. So when you, when you first become a Christian, there's some big things in your, in your life that God may show you that needs to get out. And so the picture would be as if this giant wire screen with really big holes. God maybe take out some of the biggest things in your life. So maybe if you're struggling with a, like an addiction, God would show that area of your life. That's the big problem that everyone can see that's external. But then as you, as you walk with God for longer, that screen gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just fine dust, the little specks that God is refining out of us. That's part of the sanctifying work of Jesus in our lives. And God is with us, whether we're going through hard times or uh, good times. And in Philippians 3.10, it says, uh, this is the reminder of God's suffering, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. So to illustrate what God can do and what he will do to undo all of the evil in the world. In the film version of The Two Towers, the character Samwise Gamgee tries to convince Frodo to press on to Mount Doom. They have a mission to accomplish. They need to destroy the One Ring. And so uh, they're trying to press on, but they've experienced such pain and suffering that they've been through together. And so Samwise uses this to encourage him. He says, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the only ones that really mattered, they were full of darkness and danger. And sometimes we didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. That's the great hope that Christianity holds out to us. Somehow when we, when we see the greater glory in heaven, we will look back, and as remote as it might seem right now, we'll see how our experiences with evil and with suffering made it somehow richer. Perhaps Paul says it best in Romans 8.18, For I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, and a man named George MacDonald said this, The Son of God suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. So somehow when we suffer, it helps us to become more and more like Jesus. And God cares about us so much that whatever experiences that we go through, it's not easy, but we can either choose to walk alone or we can choose to have him with us. Have him give us the strength that we need to get through. And C.S. Lewis, on his book on pain, he says, I don't have anything to offer my readers except my conviction that when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than knowledge. The knowledge, rather. A little human sympathy more than much courage. And the least tincture of the love of God more than all. So the thing that gets us through suffering is the recognition that God loves us. That God is with us. And God's love is here to help us through this difficult season. 
And in talking with Pastor Neil, as I said, he's been blessed so much by God through this time and through our prayers. He said it's uh, the picture that he got from another book is that it's like a wave that he feels like he's being carried to the shore. He feels like our prayers are carrying him when he doesn't have the strength to go on. And God is good no matter what. God has us and he's with us through all the trials of our life. And we look forward not to an easy life in the here and now, but an eternal life, an eternal hope in heaven. And uh, just to close here, Thomas A. Campus is a theologian who said this. If you carry the cross patiently and with perfect submission, and in the end, it shall carry you. Father God, there is so much suffering in the world. There is so much evil. And yet you are good. You are our hope. You are our support. You are our love. Help us now when we need you the most to rely on you. Help us to remember that our hope isn't here in the here and now. And as Pastor Michael said, that uh, it's not about demanding that you do this or that. But it is about us coming to you and praying to you and asking for the help that we need. Yes, we have desires. Yes, we have wants. Yes, we want Pastor Neil to be miraculously restored to us, Lord. But you are good no matter what happens. And we put our faith, hope, and trust in you regardless of the suffering, regardless of our trials. Help us not to be, walk as people without hope, but people who have the hope and the joy and the peace that can only come through your Holy Spirit's blessing in our lives. So as we respond now in praise, may this praise glorify you, Jesus. As we, as we go from this place in a few minutes, may it be uh, walking as people with their eyes on you, Jesus. Help us to have the courage we need to walk each day and give us each day what we need. And thank you, Jesus, that you didn't hold back, that you are willing to come to the earth to suffer and die, to make a way for us to have a restored relationship. So I thank you, Jesus, for who you are and for what you do in our lives and for what you are going to do in this week to come. In your name we pray, amen.